Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pialucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gillif. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, today we have a very special guest. We're here with Peter White, mathematical physicist and senior lecturer in mathematics at Columbia University, and the author of the book Not Even Wrong, The Failure of String Theory and the Search for Unity in Physical Law. He's joining us today to talk about whether string theory has made testable predictions, whether it has the potential to do so in the future, and more generally, how do we distinguish a promising scientific theory from a dead end? Peter, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, could you maybe start off just sort of by summarizing what string theory was trying to do and your sort of take on... Um, on how things have gone with that. <laughs> Basically, summarize your book for us in <laughs> That's right. okay. 20 words Two or minutes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so the history of string theory goes back to around 1970, and it, it started out as, a, as an attempt to understand the, uh, the issue of how to deal with strongly interacting particles, things like protons and neutrons and nuclei. And, it, um, so, and the, the idea was that fundamental objects in a theory, instead of being point-like, that points moving around in space and in space, they're actually string-like, kind of one-dimensional, wiggling things moving around in, in space. And it, um, w within a few years, in 1973, uh, a much better theory of the strong interactions came along, and that kind of put string theory out of business at that time for what it, they were trying to do with it then. But then it was revived later on in the, uh, in the early 80s, and uh, is in a different context with the idea of trying to make a theory, a quantum theory of gravity out of it, and even better, a, a unified theory, a theory that would have gravity and the, all the particle interactions we know about as a consistent quantum theory. And in, in 1984, it really took off, and um, one of the best people in the field got very interested in it. Many, many people got interested in it. And so, and so since 1984, it's been very actively um, investigated. And my, my own take on it is that it, um, it really has, hasn't lived up to its promise, that as people have learn more and more and more about it, working intensively on it since 1984, what they've just discovered is just that it leads to more and more possibilities. So the string theory is such a uh, um, kind of a flexible framework that you can pretty much get just about anything you want out of it, and you, you really kind of can't ever get anything out of it that you could, that would actually test the theory and give a distinctive prediction of the theory. It's and, the title of, I guess, of your, of your book, uh, yeah. right? Not, not even wrong. Uh, now, is that, does that title, therefore, hints as, as your view of what counts as science versus non-science, I guess? Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. So, so the, the, the title of the book actually is, it reflects a, a phrase which is actually well-known among physicists. It was kind of, uh, it's, it's normally attributed to Wolfgang Pauli, who, uh, a well-known theorist in, I guess, he died in the late 50s, and this would have been supposedly a few years before he died. He was asked about, you know, a certain piece of work. And uh, 
he, he was he people were used to him kind of shouting and uh, he was a very irascible guy and they're used to him shouting in, uh, in in lectures that you know that's wrong it's completely wrong and so someone asked him well what about this this new paper and he eventually shook his head and said well that one that one's not even wrong <laughs> and so it, it's become kind of a the ultimate insult <laughs> well so, but 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 it, it really has kind of two two meanings and and um, so 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 one meaning is kind of this fairly provocative. Um, insult that well this is this is so bad it's it's not even wrong. Uh, the the other is is this more kind of technical meeting that you know a, a theory can a, a theory which which can never really predict anything is you know can't ever be shown to be wrong is you know technically a theory which you know you, you could best describe with these words as it's not not even wrong and. So that, that seems to me like an example of something that we talked about um, in the past a couple of times, which is the old idea of the demarcation problem in philosophy of science, which is, you know, what exactly or even approximately is the distinction between science and non-science or science and pseudoscience. And, uh, you know, the original version of the demarcation problem goes back to Karl Popper and his examples of in non-science where uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and, and Marxist histories of uh, uh, theories of history. But... His point was not that they were necessarily wrong as much that they were essentially compatible with any kind of observation, any kind of empirical outcome, and therefore you couldn't tell whether they were wrong or not. Right. Is that more or less what you're talking about in terms of what, what you, your, your sense is that uh, string theory perhaps is added toward? Yeah, though it, it, it's a bit different. I mean, the, the, fun, the funny, it's very, been very funny kind of getting involved in these debates and thinking about this is that I was, when I started being very interested in philosophy of science when I was a, a student, but then at some point lost interest and this kind of physics the kind of this kind of particle physics that i was you know been working on and, and that this whole subject is about i think is is one which has never really seen these kind of debates over philosophy of science it was always kind of the hardest core it was quite clear what we were doing there was the kind of debates over you know things like marxism or psychoanalysis where these very very soft ideas you know and we particle theorists were writing down very precise equations and and there really was never a, a kind of an interesting issue about of of the the problem of the demarcation problem of whether this was science or not, and so it's um it's been interesting and to kind of to, to to see this field start to get involved in these discussions and and in these philosophical issues precisely because it's, uh, I mean the rest of theory. us are taught that physics is the queen of science and so it is in fact surprising to see that there is an area of physics where there is that kind of discussion going on absolutely. Well, uh, Peter, can we just quickly distinguish between a theory that's not falsifiable and a theory that's not provable? Like, would it be possible to uh, obtain results that would would confirm the predictions made or would, would make string theory seem more likely to be true? Or is it just not possible to falsify it? Well, it, it's really, I mean, the problem is that, and anyway, I mean, this is kind of complicated discussion. Yeah, it's kind of tricky philosophical discussion. I'm not kind of a hard to, 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 to say precisely not what I'm really trained to do. But it's not, um, I mean, so, so the, the the basic problem with string theory is that, well, for, first of all, there's one thing to say about string theory is that it, it's, it's actually an ill-defined notion. We don't know exactly what string theory is. I mean, so string theory is more of a, a hope that a certain kind of theory exists satisfying certain properties. So one argument, one way of evading the, the problems of string theory is always is, is 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 to say, well, you know, we just don't understand it well enough. We don't actually know what the theory is, and the day that we actually finally have a well-defined theory that does what we want to do, then these problems will go away. Um, the problem is that w within the current 
context of what we know about what this string theory is supposed to be, there just isn't any, there, there aren't any, there's, there's nothing like a, a legitimate sort of standard prediction you expect from such a theory. There, there isn't a, a falsifiable prediction. There isn't any, um, I'm not really quite, I guess I'm not even really quite sure exactly what you would mean to say that it's, it's provable but not falsifiable. Is that... Well, the part of the idea here is that whenever we, um, for instance, in a teaser for this podcast, we, we uh, summarize the problem as, you know, well, there is no empirical evidence that there has been um, uh, an empirical, I'm sorry, observation that could at this point uh, be the result of string theory and only of string theory. In other words, something yeah. that is a novel prediction, right? Now, typically, we get somebody who says, oh, well, what do you mean? There is uh, this idea about local space-time symmetry and Planck length. Somebody always points out to some obscure thing that, of course, I don't understand because I'm a biologist, uh, where they say, oh, no, 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 it, string theory does make a prediction, or it will make a prediction as soon as the Large Hadron Collider will start um, doing something. Oh, by the way, before we go ahead, the universe isn't going to end soon because of the collider, right? Definitely not, no. Thank you. Well, so, so what do you think? I mean, is there, in fact, something to this idea that there, are there is a possibility to test the theory and that it's coming around the corner? Uh, or do you think that that's, in fact, because of the ill-defined uh, the, the, the Ill nature of the theory that you're talking about, um, all of these attempts are actually not necessarily a test of, the, of string theory? Well, well, there really isn't anything... If you look carefully at what people will say, so I mean, there are there are, there are some string theorists who will say, okay, I have a, a string theory prediction, you know, about what the Large Hadron Collider will see. Now, if, if you if you look at what this actually is, you'll find that it's some some very specific model with a lot of different assumptions built into it. it it's one of the many many different classes of things which are consistent with what we know about string theory, but but it's only one. And so, you know, if you kind of pick out one of these infinite number of string theories, if you like, you can say, okay, this, this one of them makes predictions. But, but the problem is it's certainly not falsifiable. It's not um, if the LHC, I mean, string theory is not falsifiable. If, you, if the LHC doesn't see what that, you know, what that particular model predicts, well, you, you can just say, okay, well, that was just one of an infinite number of models. Let's just, we, we can just pick another one. Um, it, it, it's actually, it does get to a very complicated, I mean, it's another complicated issue in philosophy of science, which has come up around this. What you see string theorists saying is that, well, string theory is just like the rest of our, even like even our best theory, the so-called standard model, in the sense that, okay, there are lots and lots of these different string theories, and, you know, all we can ever do is kind of pick one and go and look and see if that if that's right. The... Um, the, 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 the situation, though, is, is different than in, in the standard model. You basically have a, a very rigid mathematical structure and with a certain number of parameters, and there, there, there's a very limited amount of, of what you can of, of what you can change. And there, there, there's a much wider class of theories: these quantum field theories and gauge theories. And in principle, so and that's what string theorists like to compare to. But but if you look at the standard model, what the standard model is, is it, it's really the simplest of this large class of theories. There are many, many, there's an infinite number of these theories, of infinite number of quantum field theories, just like there are an infinite number of um, string theories, basically. But the, what's, what's actually, what's, what's interesting and why the standard model is predictive is that you don't have to go and pick some very, very complicated quantum field theory. You pick kind of the simplest, one of the simplest ones in that class. And then once you've 
made that choice, there's this huge amount of predictions flow from it. You have a very small amount of input is giving you a huge amount of output and a very rigid structure. So, but uh, string I, theory, this, that just kind of doesn't, it's kind of the opposite. You know, you have to kind of keep making it more and more complicated just to avoid having it contradict experiment. Now, I want to go back um, eventually to the, to the actual science, um, particularly this notion of a large family of theories, which may yeah. be interesting to, to explore a little bit in more detail. But we also need to get dirty at some point. <laughs> uh, as you know, the, a lot of the controversy surrounding string theory and criticism of string theory has a lot to do with the soci sociology and, in fact, even psychology, I would say, of science, not just the philosophy of science. Um, now, since you are our guest, I'm not going to actually bring up comments that, that people have made about you, but I'm going <laughs> to oh, bring sure. up... Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> if you want, we can get into those as well. I've but I'm going to bring it. up something that, uh, uh, you know, as you know, you, you're certainly not the only one to raise these, these questions and to criticize string theory. And so there's an interesting uh, comment that somebody wrote about um, uh, Lise Mullen, who has, is one of your colleagues, who has also written a, a book, um, uh, Critical of uh, String Theory, the title of it is uh, On the Trouble with Physics, where he analyzes the, the current situation as he sees it uh, of um, theoretical fundamental theoretical physics. Um, now, apparently, uh, Leonard Susskind, who is a high-profile um, physicist, uh, theoretical physicist, referred to Smolin as, and I quote, a mid-level theoretical physicist whose popular book writing activities and the related promotional hustling have given him a platform high above the, that merited by his physis, physics accomplishments. Ouch! <laughs> uh, what do you make of that? <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, what happened was in it was in 2006, a few years ago. These two books came out at the same time. So, so Lise Mullins and my book, and and they and we have somewhat different points of view, but we have in many ways similar points of view about string theory. And and so it, it led to a, what's often referred to as the string wars. So during the that time, on if you go to various blogs written or, and look at the postings around that period, you can find all, all sorts of really kind of outrageous stuff going on and these kind of personal attacks on me and on Smolin. And, 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 and one problem that the people doing this had was that, I mean, that they couldn't really use the same arguments against Smolin and against me. So, so, so I mean, I, I've had a kind of, kind of unusual career and I'm no longer in a physics department. So I, I guess I was portrayed as this kind of failed, failed and embittered physicist who, uh, uh, who really doesn't know what he's talking about. And then, but the problem was with Lee Smolin is he's a distinguished professor at the Perimeter Institute in Canada and kind of has, you know, every proper academic credential of the field and has actually written papers on string theory. So they couldn't use that against him. So against him, well, they have to, I mean, one of the main arguments I got him is, well, he has this alternate to string theory thing that he works on. And it, it was just kind of special pleading for his alternate theory, which is wrong anyway. And, and I guess the, the quote you gave from Suskin was somewhat of an attempt to right. split the difference. I mean, you, and, you guys are in good company because this, I've seen this thing happening in other fields. Uh, Carl Sagan was often criticized for as being not a particularly good scientist because he was so interested in talking to the general public, to the popular, uh, you know, writing for the popular um, press. Uh, Stephen Gould, uh, um, who was one of the most prominent evolutionary biologists of the later part of the 20th century, he was harshly criticized uh, along similar lines. And, uh, you know, uh, so it's not, it doesn't happen only in physics, but it seems to me very interesting that we're talking about a you know, very important part of the sociology of science. If I could get back quickly to the falsifiability, to the testability. Back of, to the science. Of, of okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> if we're dirty enough for now. Yes. Um, so... Setting aside the question of the, whether string theory is empirically testable now or, or potentially ever, uh, it's, it struck me that it seems to have been tested in a sense 
theoretically, just in that, um, if I'm not mistaken, it it has enabled developments in other fields of physics, um, uh, like relating to the the quantum mechanics of black holes. That the the math that string theory uses has um, has enabled these further developments. Doesn't that seem like evidence in favor of it being true? Or why why would that have happened if string if string theory was just is pure fabrication? Well, I mean, it, it's not pure fabrication. It's a, I mean, it, it's definitely a very interesting idea. So it's an interesting, it, it's definitely an interesting thing to pursue this question of what, you know, if, if instead of having kind of point-like degrees of freedom, you have these string-like degrees of freedom and you start applying the normal rules of quantum mechanics and of special relativity to this and, and to try to see what you get. I mean, you, you, you definitely get some, some, you know, very interesting models and some very interesting mathematical structures to study and, you know, and, and there may be things you can do with them. I mean, my claim is really has never been that you know that string theory is completely useless. You're never going to get anything out of it. And so it's it's really been that the specific thing that that string theory was sold as as has hoping to do, which was to unify physics and to have a unified theory of quantum gravity and particle physics, a standard model, to put them together into one predictive unified framework. That that you know that that main application of these string theory ideas that that was was sold sold to the public and to everyone else that that really hasn't hasn't worked and really can't work. So even though it's useful, that doesn't bear on whether it's true. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Well, it, I mean, it, it's a very complicated. When you start pursuing this, you, I mean, you, you find it's a very complicated subject. You 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 find all sorts of complicated issues come up as you investigate those complicated issues. You learn things, and you actually some of the, one of the best arguments for string theory is, is actually the effect it's had in mathematics. That it's raised a lot of very interesting mathematical questions, and it, it's actually had some very serious impact in, in in several subfields of mathematics. And a lot of my mathematician colleagues kind of don't don't really kind of understand what I'm doing. Often their attitude is, "Well, you know, you know, I, I mean, I know something about string theory, and it leads to all this great mathematics, which helps me understand, which is given so-called mirror symmetry, this, these great new relations between these six-dimensional." spaces and, and a lot of very interesting mathematics. So, hey, th- this is great. What's the problem? And the, the problem is not that this this is some useless, worthless idea. The problem is that one very speculative way of using these strings really just doesn't work and that, that, that that's the thing which doesn't work. So I want to go back, however, to the, to the uh, point that you touched uh, on earlier, which is this idea that there is a family, perhaps, of theories or, or a large number of theories that, uh, that uh, share certain fundamental uh, uh, Similarities. Um, two points about that. First of all, um, again, I, I come from a different background in, in uh, theoretical biology, where I once heard a very prominent theoretical biologist uh, saying that uh, if you just give me four variables to play with, I can simulate whatever the hell you want. That's right. Um, yeah. So if you have more than four, it's uh, it's basically which 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 of course got, comes to the second point, which is when in philosophy of science is often referred to as the underdetermination of theory by the data. Meaning that if you do have, in fact, a theory that comes in so many varieties, so many flavors, and which is the dependent on, on the adjustment of so many parameters, it is essentially impossible for, for all effective purposes, impossible to actually come up with empirical data that are capable of discriminating um, between the different versions of the theory. Is that part of the problem here? That's essentially what the problem is here. And, yeah, and I would say it, maybe it's the same thing, is that I mean, in practice what you see is that if you look at these models that string theorists are, are studying is that what what they do is they they start out with simple ones and then they find that the um, the, the 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 simple ones kind of are in conflict with experiments somehow 
And so you, they then make it a little bit more complicated to avoid that conflict with experiment. And then, and what all they've got at this point is some fairly quite complicated models, which are kind of carefully tuned so as to avoid actually saying anything, which can be te- can be tested by experiment because they would be wrong. So that seems to me just the hallmark of an idea which doesn't work, that you have to kind of keep be- making it more and more complicated all the time to avoid actually confronting experiment. Is it that adding epicycles, basically? Yeah, is that what we're talking instance, about? Yeah, that's, right. that's the same sort of thing. So uh, an argument that I've often heard in favor of string theory is that it's beautiful and that therefore it's more likely to be true. I mean, this, uh, you know, I, Einstein... Yeah. Uh, pointed to the beauty of his equations as evidence for their truth, and, that, and he was right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the yeah. whether you think string theory is beautiful or, or elegant and whether how that's related to the, the truth of yeah. an equation? Well, I, that, I mean, that's an argument I'm actually very sympathetic to. I mean, I also share this philosophical belief that there is this kind of deep and beautiful connection between mathematics and physics and whatever our most fundamental theory is, it's, it is going to be something quite beautiful. And what, what do we mean by beauty here, by the way? How, okay. can... So, so I mean, after thinking about it, I, I realize that what... Not the sort of things you get on Sports Illustrated. <laughs> no. That's, you know, spinning. Yes. No, so, so, so actually, I, I think to me, I think beauty is being, beauty or elegance is being used in a very specific way generally by physicists when we're talking about this, mm-hmm. which is that you've got a structure which involves a very small amount of input. That, that to specify what this thing is, you have to kind of say very, very, very little. There's kind of one, one of these things or there's a small number of them and, and, and you can specify it with, with, with some kind of clear and simple description. And out of that simple specification, a whole world emerges and this, this huge number of different, very non-trivial predictions and all sorts of different structure comes out as you start you know, investigating the... Um, the consequences of the structure. So to me, kind of elegance or beauty here means it's kind of the ratio between the, the non-trivial, huge, wonderful structure you're getting out to the very small number of principles you're putting in. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really the hallmark of our best theories. Things like the standard model, you can, I mean, I can write down in one line, I've got to specify a small number of numbers and it's there and it makes an infinite number of predictions. The, the, the problem with string theory is that when people talk about it being beautiful, what they what they're referring to, they're not referring to that because that doesn't work. They're, I mean, or if they're referring to that, they're referring to a hope that someday that would happen. So you have to look at what exactly they're saying when they're when they say it's a beautiful idea. Sometimes they, what they mean is, well, it's it's a beautiful idea if it worked. Which, yeah, okay, and 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 and, and some, but and anyway, so, 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 so but uh, yeah, I mean, the when, when they're talking about the beauty of the idea, they're they're not actually talking about the actual attempts to make it work, these so these kind of string theory models which people try and compare with experiment are things which are really spectacularly ugly. They've been made more and more complicated mm-hmm. to avoid experiment, and they're, they're, no, nobody, even the string theorists, agree that the actual models they're working with and trying to claim that maybe you can confront with experiment that these things are beautiful. But I want to follow up on, on Julia's question, which is, um, you know, the, the general idea that uh, more beautiful mathematical constructions, however you want to define beauty in in mathematics, or simpler theories, um, you know, all these uh, tend to be variations of something in philosophy is known as Occam's razor. Now, the the thing is, um, there's many examples in the history of science where, in fact, more complicated and less elegant theories turned out to be correct. Uh, you know, the classic example is the, is, is the shift from the Copernic, original Copernican theory to the Keplerian version, where in, the planets turned out not to be 
uh, orbiting on perfect circles, but on you know very imperfect ellipses. Uh, that seems like the kind of situations where, in fact, in that case, Kepler was stuck for many years on this idea of circles because he really liked this idea that the, the things were simple and beautiful and all that. And he was, he, you can almost call this a metaphysical assumption. Uh, and it was only when he got out of that of, of that rut that he was actually able to make uh, progress. Do you think that there is a, a chance that sometimes in modern physics we, we run into these this kind of problems, that the people are a little too enamored with the with this um, idea of beauty and simplicity? Well, sure. I mean, y y you never really know when um, you've got some certain model with a certain, you're in a certain kind of conceptual structure, and within that structure certain things are simple and certain things are complicated. I mean, it, it, it may be that you've you, you've got the wrong basic structure and you're going to have to move to another one and from the point of view of this your the one you've got now the reality is it actually looks kind of complicated and so you, you may actually have to move to more complicated things within your structure to, to finally see what's really going on and uh, but but at least in the for instance in the Copernican case I mean the reason for these uh, anyway I mean there you you had theories which you know whatever their problems actually did Make kind of non-trivial non predictions, and were in, you know, in, and had some kind of serious um, experimental backing to them. I mean, the real pro the problem with string theory is not that is that it's not like that. It's not like string theory has predicted some things and done some things right, and there's reason, there's solid experimental reason to believe something is going on here. The problem is, it's, it really has got nothing right so far, and it really hasn't got. It's all promise. Great. Yeah, it's all promise, and no, um, you know, there aren't the kind of solid, you know, experiment experimental results or results out of it that would lead you to believe that this is you're on the right track yeah on that depressing note peter we're gonna wrap up this section of the podcast but we'll, we'll have to okay. have you back on maybe after the large hadron collider yeah. okay has, sure has then, done its thing assuming it hasn't uh, killed us all that's right assuming process. that the universe is not over <laughs> we're still here you can, you can there may be a more back. positive more interesting story then <laughs> <laughs> thank you so now we're going to move on to the rationally speaking picks Welcome back. Every episode, Julia and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, website, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. But this time, as usual, because we have a guest, we actually uh, give the honor of the pick of the podcast to our guest, Peter Voigt. Peter. Okay, so my pick, I guess, would be a, a book called The End of Science by um, science writer John Horgan. It, it was written in the, in, in the mid-1990s. I think it was published maybe 1997. And at a time when string theory was kind of uh, being kind of heavily promoted and all of the kind of popular science press was full of kind of very enthusiastic things about this wonderful idea, Horgan was already quite a skeptic. A skeptic. I mean, he really wasn't, uh, it's kind of graded him the wrong way. And he, uh, this fit into, into this much larger argument he has about, about the end of science. And so anyway, I think it's kind of a fascinating book in many ways. I mean, it, it uh, it this this question of when you know are do you get to some point in in a pursuit of of a science or a scientific area in which you know the thing really is going to come to an end um that you've you've been too successful in some sense you're a victim of your own success and this work this just works too well and scientists actually hate this i should say this i've been at a conference with john horgan where he was almost kind of physically assaulted by the by the scientists there who just who do not want to ever hear this that perhaps what they're doing could 
in some sense come to an end or some end to it. But um, I think he had a, he had a lot of things right. He was right about string theory at the time. You know, there's some other things I think he he had wrong, but it's a I think it's a fascinating book. I've actually had reading. similar experiences uh, talking to colleagues about the fact that after all, there has to be logically speaking an end to, sci to science eventually. Not that anybody's claiming that it's happening, you know, right now. Uh, simply because the number of um, big questions uh, which make science interesting are in fact limited. I mean, once you and once you start selling some of those, uh, for instance. Uh, You know, if we ever going to figure out uh, the question of the origin of life, well, that's one question and it's off the chart and, and it's a big one. Now, I do hear often some of my colleagues say, well, but for every question and answer, there's two or three that emerge. Well, that may be true in a trivial sense that there's going to be always some little additional puzzle that is that is uh, that comes up next. But if you conceive of science as the the uh, enterprise that asks the big questions about nature and and not just a, you know a set of small little puzzles to be solved uh, on a daily basis, then it seems to me that it is obvious that in fact science is limited and therefore it's going to end one of these days. Hopefully, either that or we're going to run into a wall, epistemological wall, where uh, we're essentially running into a question that we do not have a good answer to. Uh, and again, the original life may be a good example simply right. because we don't have the historical traces for, for to say much about it. And so we may, may be unable to answer that question, period, simply because we don't have the tools to do it. Peter, what, what do you think the, the sort of common wisdom is in the scientific community about, about what's on the horizon for science, whether we're going to reach the limit of our understanding or whether... Um, it's just hard for me to understand how they could think that we have sort of an infinite future ahead of us in, scientists, in science, assuming we keep making progress. Well, I don't know about science in general, but I should just talk maybe about particle physics, which is a subject sure. I know best. And w within that, I think the, um, I, I think probably most particle physicists kind of believe or, or, or in, in some sense they'll say, well, you know, the LHC will maybe discover new things and we'll have some new better theory because of that, but that won't be the end of it. Then we can go to higher and higher energies and we'll learn more and there'll be more and more. And, and they kind of hold out this uh, idea that, well, that there is this kind of, that this, this never has an end. I think they, they, psychologically, they just don't like to think of, think of it ending. Right. I mean, some other physicists, I mean, have actually made this point, I guess, Steven Weinberg refers to um, what we're doing is the search for the f a final theory. And then, you know, that there really is, and string theory was actually supposed to be, such a thing. It really was supposed to be an endpoint that if, if the, this original vision of string theory really was right, that was, that was it. You know, once you've got that thing written down, that's all there is to say in that particular direction of science, in that particular search for a more fund, fundamental objects, you've, you've identified them, you've, you, you know, you have a theory of how they behave and that is supposed to be the end of it. So while, while I'm a skeptic about string theory, I don't think it does provide the final theory that, um, people had hoped, I'm, I'm much more of an optimist than I think many physicists that there, that such a thing is out there and that we may actually be closer to it than we think. The, the fact that this theory we have today is so good that there are no experiments at all, absolutely none that disagree with it means that we're, we, we, we may actually be closer to it than many physicists. Do you think there are uh, any Uh, large areas, uh, large fields of science that actually have already seen something like that. As for instance, I often hear uh, said that, well, for all effective purposes, chemistry as a fundamental science doesn't exist anymore because it, it is either about 
you know, solving specific problems within the general framework of an established theory, or the the frontier kind of research is in fact physics uh, or fundamental physics and not. I mean, do you buy that kind of argument? Well, I don't know. I, mean, I, I think I, I think it is true that certain cer- cer- certain directions of of investigation do you know do do reach an end. So I mean, there was a point when when, chem- when chemistry was about okay, we're trying to identify these basic atoms and, and and how they you know interact together and fit together to form chemical compounds. And in some sense, you know that, that was done. We now know quantum mechanics told us how that works. You know, but so that you know that kind of direction may be over, but it it, it doesn't mean that there are not other you know directions in which which are. So you're hopeful for chemists. I mean, I, I, I don't have any. Uh, I'm not a chemist. I don't. You don't. I don't, I don't know what they do fight, all day. Yes. <laughs> that, that's a nice optimistic note on which to wrap up. But much better than our last section, which ended on a downer. <laughs> okay. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>